0: Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs and he returns to the earth. That very day his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoners free, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, the Lord raises up those who are bowed down, the Lord loves the righteous, the Lord protects the strangers, he supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked, the Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise Lord. Amen. And that is the word of the Lord. God, uh, we just do commit this time to you. I pray you would open our hearts, open our ears, Lord. I pray you would speak to us. pray we would be doers of your word uh, and and that you would uh, yeah speak to us, Lord. We, we want to hear from you. We want your instruction. We want your guidance. We want your word. Uh, we cherish your word above all else. So give it to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Providence, the, the verse I kind of want to start with is Proverbs 16:9. It says, "The man, or the mind of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. When we think we're coming up with plans, we're figuring out what we want to do, and, uh, and, and that's good. We're, 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 we want to plan. The, the, the problem is is we often plan with leaving God out, but we want to make plans. We want to be directed by God. But ultimately, our plans don't always come through fruition. There's a lot of times where I think God's leading me one way, and I'm planning, and I'm ready to do that. And then all of a sudden, God's got some other thing going on. Just a couple of years ago, we were planning to go to Israel, and we were making plans. We thought the Lord was leading us there, and He was opening doors, and all this amazing stuff was happening, and we're like, man, the Lord is in this. And then He wasn't. <laughs> next thing we know, it was COVID, and everything was locked down. And it's like you ain't even going up your front driveway much less going to Israel, right? So it's the Lord working out His plan. We could think that we know what we're doing and the way we want to go, but ultimately the Lord's plan is what's going to come to fruition. That's providence. We don't think or talk about providence much more in society. Providence used to be a a huge subject amongst uh, evangelical Christians, amongst the people of God, so much so that providence even became a name for God. You'll read stuff written in the 1800s, the early 1900s, and, and, and providence is a, a, a proper noun. It has a, a capital P, and it's speaking of the divine. It's speaking of God. Providence was so associated with God that it became a name for him. R.C. Spool said this. I thought this was interesting. He said some years ago during a television, television special on the Civil War, One of the more dramatic moments was the reading of letters written by soldiers on the eve of battle to their wives, sweethearts, parents regarding the uncertainty ahead. Those letters frequently referred to providence. The soldier would write, My beloved wife, providence has brought me to this point in my life, and I know not what providence has in store for me tomorrow. And if it should be according to providence that I'm not to survive tomorrow, I will entrust the care of you and of the children to the same benevolent providence. Over and over, these letters referred to providence. Many of the soldiers died in that battle. And there was such keen sense of God's providence that the word was a normal part of the Christian vocabulary. General Stonewall Jackson would say to his troops in the eve of battle, question marks the battle as ours. The outcome belongs to providence. It is of God. Our nation's founders even named a town in Massachusetts, one of the early towns, Providence. Providence speaks of God's superintendence over his creation, human history, salvation, and individual lives. Providence is a Latin word. It comes from uh, the prefix pro, which means in front of or before, and, and "videre." Which is the word that we get uh, video from? It means to see. So providence literally means to see beforehand, uh, to see in front of, to, uh, to, to see in fore. But it's more than foreknowledge. I remember uh, when I was about high school age, there was this movie that came out called Napoleon Dynamite. Any of you guys remember that movie? I must have seen that movie like six times in the theater with my friends, like literally every other night that summer. We went and watched it. And after the first few times of watching it, it was like, I knew the movie. I could quote the movie. I could quote the lines. I knew exactly what was going to happen. It was like I'm going in there and I'm watching it, but it was like I'd seen it and I've already seen it before, right? Well, providence is much more than that. Uh, Providence is, uh, it it says that God is, not that he's just seen the movie before, but he's the author of the movie. He's the one that wrote the the screenplay. And not only did he write the screenplay, the one that did the casting, he's the one that's uh, directing the movie, he's the one that does the screen set. He's intimately working every detail of the movie and bringing it to the completion to, to, to display exactly what he has originally designed for that movie to be. He's working in every detail of the film to it's desired end. In. in 1937, Walt Disney released his first full-length animated movie. It was called Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Producing an animated movie at that time was a gargantuan task. It was a a huge feat. Uh, Disney artist drew over one million pictures. And each picture flashed onto the screen for a mere one twenty-fourth of a second. As we watched the movie run together at regular speeds, it seemed so simple. We have no idea how that goes into it. Our lives are like that movie. God puts infinite thought, skill, careful attention into every detail, yet as our lives run at regular speed, we have no idea how much God's providence fills every second of our life. John MacArthur uh, defines providence this way. He said divine providence is God's preserving his creation, operating in every event in the world, and directing the things in the universe to His appointed end for them. The Lexan Bible Dictionary puts it this way, God's plan and interaction with His creation, usually discussed in association with His sovereignty, foreknowledge, predestination, free will, and evil. The Dictionary of Theological Terms defines providence as the efficacious administration of an all-wise God of his eternal decree. Uh, Burkhoff says, he continues, that continued exercise of the divine energy whereby the creator preserves all of his creations or creatures is operative in all that comes to pass in the world and directs all things to their appointed end. Uh, as we hear these definitions of providence, uh, it, we got to think that this is not the way that our world thinks about the events that come to pass. Right? And, and not at all. We use words like faith, like luck, serendipity, history, progress, nature, natural selection, survival of the fittest. These are ways that our world describes what's going on. Not that it has to do with God's providence, God's sovereignty, God working out. Preordained details for the world. In fact, the 20th century humanist manifesto said this, we find insufficient evidence for belief in the existence of a supernatural. It is either meaningless or irrelevant to question the survival and fulfillment of the human race. As non-theists, we begin with humans, not God. Nature, not deity. We can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. How sad is that to live that way? But as Christians, we shouldn't think that way, right? We need to realize that God is in control and he's working out his plan for history. That all things are happening according to his will. That's what Ephesians 1.11 says. It says, We have Obtain an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the divine decrees, how God has foreordained in eternity past every single thing that's going to happen in the history of the world and how it's going to happen. His providence is bringing those divine decrees to pass, putting those into action into the world, and 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 superintending and overseeing that they happen the way that he decreed them to happen. When the Westminster Confession was written, uh, deism was uh, one of the major worldviews, false worldviews, that the uh, church was confronting in that day. It was an opponent to the church. And deism taught that God exists, and he created the world, but he's kind of, uh, above and beyond the affairs of the world, he's not present in the, the daily activity of it. He has no sovereignty, no control over it. He's the it's it's the illustration of the guy who builds the grandfather clock and 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 makes it all nice and pretty and winds it all up and then leaves and lets it to itself to tell time. But has no other interaction with it. That's how Deism uh, pictured this world. And sadly, I think a lot of Christians, a lot of evangelicals today picture the world the same way that God created it, that God got it going, and now it's kind of just up to natural law and us to make it continue to work. You know, we don't have a, a whole lot of people claiming to be deists today. However, that has crept in, like I said, into our thinking. And to the the worldviews of today, uh, we have that same logic that God isn't involved in the the details of our life, that God isn't uh, sovereign over what's really going on. Things are just happening and we're, you know, having to deal with the consequences of actions and people's free wills and and things like that. Uh, Divine providence also negates fatalism. I like what uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon says here about uh, divine providence and fatalism. He says, I hear one say, well, sir, you seem to be a fatalist. Uh, Spurgeon was big into the sovereignty of God. He he was a a, a Calvinist, and and he very much advocated that that God is sovereign over every detail of the world. And because of that, some people were saying, hey, that's fatalistic. There's no room for, for free will, you know, it's just... Uh, you know, it, it's this thing that God's just going to do what he's going to do, and, and nothing else really matters. And he says, well, sir, you seem to be a fatalist." Spurgeon replies, no, far from it. There is just this difference between fate and providence. Fate is blind. Providence has eyes. Fate is blind, a thing that must be. It is a bow shot from an arrow that must fly onward, but hath no target. Not so. Providence. Providence is full of eyes. There is design in everything. And an end to be answered. All things are working together and working together for good. They are not done because they must be done, but they're done because there is some reason for it. And it's not only that that thing is, but it must be. But the thing is because it is right. It should be. God hath not arbitrarily marked out the world's history, He had an eye to the great architecture of perfection when he marked all the aisles of history and placed all the pillars of events in the building of time. You know, there's a a big debate about miracles in the church today. Uh, Some people say that God still performs these supernatural signs today. And some people say that he doesn't, that the signs and wonders were there for affirming the message of the early church, affirming the message of the apostles. And they say, "Well, you know, now we have the canon of Scripture. And so we don't really need the, uh, these supernatural affirming signs anymore. We could use his word to affirm the message like the Bereans did. But I love that the Bereans, uh, they didn't have the New Testament either, and they were still able to search the Scriptures to see if (laughs) what Paul was saying was true. So, I don't think the canon of Scripture is the... Anyways, but uh, my my point is this, that uh, my point isn't to argue cessationalism or continuationism. My, My point is to say is that there's an even bigger miracle going on these supernatural miracles that we read about in the Bible and that people are searching after today. And this miracle is a miracle of provenance. A miracle is the suspension of natural law. We have laws like gravity and things like cause and effect, things like that. And every now and then, those get suspended. Like when Jesus walked on water, he suspended the natural law to walk on water. Right? And, and and that's what we call a miracle. We love these miracles. But, but coordinating all the events in history, uh, all the secondary causes, including all of human free will uh, to accomplish exactly what he ordained from before the foundation of the world, is a much greater miracle. You think about all that has all the wisdom, all the power, everything that has to go in to bring about this foreordained plan of God providentially through the history of the world. And it is a a massive miracle that He's not only providentially working in my life, in your life, in your life, but in every life in the universe and in the world. And not just our lives, but He's working in creation. He's working in history. He's working in governments. Everything. He's providentially working together at the same time. It is a massive, massive undertaking and a a complete miracle. Only something that could be done by God. We see the doctrine of providence on every page of Scripture because God is sovereignly working out His plan in history through His providence. The Bible really is a book about the providence of God in history. No matter what passage in Scripture we go to, we can find providence because God is providential over all of history. So. The Bible is history, so the Bible is going to be filled with God's providence, is the idea. The first place that we see it, though, is in Genesis chapter 22. We see it before this, but this is where it's first explicitly seen. Remember, God told Abraham to take his only son Isaac and go to Moriah and to sacrifice him. And so he grabs Isaac and the servant, and they walk for three days and go to this place where God told them to go, and he leaves his servant, and Abram and his son are going up to the top of Moriah for a sacrifice, and Isaac says this in verse 7. And says, Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself, the lamb, for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound up his son Isaac, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took a knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to harm him. For I know that you fear God, since you have withheld your son. Or you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes, and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham named that place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Literally, the Lord will see. See, the Lord saw to it and provided there for Abraham. The the Lord providentially brought that ram into the thicket. And then 2,000 years later, he ultimately provided himself, like he said he would, as the ultimate sacrifice for our sin there on Moriah. God eventually brought that to pass. And that's where we first see this idea explicitly in the scriptures. But what is the scope of God's providence? Uh, how far does this extend into life? So, if you're first, first fill-in, fill in the word everything. God's providence includes everything. Uh, here, I'm going to give you uh, areas that it, uh, God's providence uh, extends to, and then give you, hopefully, a, a Bible verse or a biblical reason that that, that is true. Uh, God's providence involves the entire universe as a whole. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. God's providence includes the physical realm. Psalm 104.14 says, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle, the vegetation for the labor of man, so that He may bring forth food from the earth. Matthew 5.45, So that your sons... Or so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So God provides food for the cattle. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. He, he provides uh, rain, uh, sun to the good and the evil. He, he, he's operating over all the affairs of this physical world. We also see that God is providentially caring for the animal kingdom. In Matthew 10.29, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. God's providence extends over the nations. He's providentially uh, working in uh, the, the nations and bringing about their history and, uh, and, and, and the rise and fall of them. Job 12.23 says, He makes the nations great, then He destroys them. He enlarges the nations, and then He leads them away. God providentially designs uh, the the boundaries of our lives. In uh, Psalm 139, verse 16, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there were not one. See, God had ordained when we would be born, when we would die, where we would be born, who our parents would be. All of these things didn't happen by chance. They were in God's decree, and He's providentially bringing it about. He's providentially, you know, making sure that we're born when we we're supposed to be, and that or die when He said that we're going to die. You know, we're not even in control of that. You could say, hey, what if I go and, and shoot myself right now? I could prove them wrong. Well, no, we would just be proven that's what he chose the day for me to die. Today would have been the day. But everything's going to happen the way that he said. Uh, He's providentially uh, seeming to man's success and failures. Psalm 75, 6 and 7 says, For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. But God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. So, so we, if we get a promotion, it's not because we worked hard or because of, of something that, that, that we did. It's because God providentially provided us and, and, and made a way for us to get that promotion. We see God's providence in things that appear accidental and unimportant. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So when we go to Vegas and we throw the dice, we might think it's just pure chance what we're going to get. But the Lord's sovereign over that. Would we pull the handle on the the slot machine? The Lord's sovereign over what's going to come up on there. The the Lord's providentially bringing His plan to pass in every detail. Matthew 10.30 says, But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. You know, God, God cares more for us than we do. You know, we spend a lot of effort and a lot of money and a lot of resources trying to take care of ourselves and make ourselves healthy. God spends more. I've never counted the hairs on my head or on anybody else's head, but God knows how, exactly how many hairs are on my head. If I lose six hairs, I don't, you know, get all anxious about it. But God knows exactly how many hairs I had yesterday and how many I have. Me, better than I do. God's providence includes the protection of His people. In Psalm 4.8 it says, In peace I will both lie down and fall asleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Psalm 63.8, My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. The provision of God's people isn't outside of His providence either. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ. The very fact that your means are being met each and every day is God's providence being worked out. God's providence, lastly, includes the judgment of the wicked. Psalm 11, verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold His face. Think about the story of Joseph. Think about all that had to happen for him to end up in the place where his dream came true and he's able to be the savior of Israel's children or his brothers. There's a whole lot of details that had to work out precisely for to get him as the number two guy in the whole world, the, the, the prime minister of Egypt. Just think about this. First of all, his dad had to prefer him over his brothers. His dad had to give him that multicolored coat, you know. Had to show favoritism. Joseph had to have this dream that his brothers are going to bow down to him and his parents are going to bow down to him. He had to share that dream with his brothers. Dad had to send the brothers out to go tend sheep, right? Dad had to then worry about the brothers and send Joseph out to go check on them. The brothers had to move from Shechem, to Dotham. Joseph shows up in Shechem, and there had to be a guy there that saw the brothers in Shechem had talked to the brothers and knew that they were going to Dotham to tell Joseph, hey, go to Dotham and stuff. That's where your brothers are. Uh, they, Joseph uh, uh, arrives there in Dotham, uh, where his brothers are, and, and they have this plan. Here he, here he comes. Let's kill him. And there just happened to be a pit that was driven, or dug there in Gotham that they could throw him in. They throw him in the pit and they sit and they start having lunch. They're enjoying their little sandwiches and there needed to be a, a band of Ishmaelites, merchants, traveling by at that particular time. Then they had to be interested in buying Joseph. They buy Joseph. Joseph then goes down with them to Egypt. And Potiphar had to find something attractive in Joseph to bring him into his house. Potiphar's wife had to find something attractive about Joseph to pursue him. Then he's in the dungeon. There needed to be a couple of government officials in the dungeon with him who happened to have a dream, and they needed to share that dream with Joseph. And Joseph interprets it. Now these two Government officials need to be released from prison and go into the presence of Pharaoh. Pharaoh needed to have a dream that nobody else is able to interpret. Then the baker needed to show that Joseph had this dream, or he had this dream, and Joseph was able to interpret it. And then they needed to bring Joseph to Pharaoh, who needed to be able to, you see, it just goes on and on and on and on these details. And to think that this happened by chance is crazy. But how about the spies going into Israel? Right, they needed to go in and happen to find this sympathetic harlot to talk to, who takes them into their house, who happens to have a, a house that's in the wall of the city and has a window that they can escape from. And it just so happens that it's during harvest time, and she's got a bunch of flax on her roof that they're able to hide under. You see, this is all providence. God's providentially working His plan for His people to bring about His will for His glory. I like this. Cliff Burrows. Have any of you guys heard of him? I'm sure we've all heard of him in one of Pastor Bob's illustrations before, but We're going to hear about it again. Cliff uh, Burroughs has served as Billy Graham's lifelong associate and crusade song leader. In 1945, before he met Billy Graham, Burroughs and his fiancée, Billy, had scraped together enough funds for a simple wedding and two train tickets to a city with a resort hotel. On arrival, however, they found the hotel shut down. Stranded in an unfamiliar city with little money, they thumbed a ride a sympathetic driver and took them to a grocery store owned by a woman he knew. The Newlywoods spent their first night in a room above the store. The next day when the lady overheard Cliff playing Christian songs on his tambourine, she arranged for them to spend the rest of their honeymoon at a friend's house. Several days later, the host invited them to attend a youth rally where a young evangelist was speaking. The song leader that night was sick and Cliff was asked to take charge of the music for the service. The young evangelist, of course, was Billy Grant. The two have been partners ever since. When things don't go the way you plan, God may have a plans for you all his own. Now I want to talk about some principles, applications, as far as uh, some things that we need to to think rightly about, to have the correct view of it, and some ways that we could apply it uh, to our walk. So for number one, uh, God's providence doesn't negate human liberty and responsibility. So fill in liberty and responsibility. You know, it'd be easy to say that if God is sovereign and His plans will come to pass, how can I be responsible for my actions? Would Judas one day be able to say that he did God a favor? That, that God's plan of salvation wouldn't have been able to come to pass as if, if it wasn't for me? Well, one day, in judgment, him, he'd say, Hey, God, you know, I kind of, you know, helped you out there. You know, you wouldn't have gotten to the cross and been able to be the savior of the world if it wasn't for me? What about Joseph's brothers? Can they say that they helped Joseph out, that Joseph kind of owes him a thank you because they got him promoted to the superintendent or the uh, prime minister of Egypt? It doesn't work that way. They were free to make evil decisions and they're responsible for them. That's what the Bible teaches. Joseph told his brothers that they meant it for evil. Exactly evil is what they did. It was 100% evil. The Bible tells us that God will judge our thoughts and Our intentions and their thoughts and intentions towards their brother were 100% evil. They had hatred for their brother. And they're going to be judged for that. What about Judas? You know, he's forever known as the one who betrayed Jesus. Whenever we see a list of the 12 apostles, he's listed last. And he's listed as the one who betrayed Jesus. In the Bible, he's one of two people called the son of perdition. Him and the Antichrist. He's in company there. He wanted to betray Jesus for selfish reasons, and he's going to be responsible for it. You know, a few weeks ago I talked about the law of causality when we're talking about God's decrees. How every action has two causes. God is the primary cause or the first cause. Nothing happens unless he first decrees it. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. Without God, nothing happens. He's the primary cause of everything, but we, his free human agents, are the second causes. We make choices, and those choices have consequences. And it just so happened that our free choices and their natural consequences end up accomplishing what God has decreed. So God uses secondary causes to bring about what he has planned. And he holds those secondary consequences responsible for the evil that they cause. Because He's not coercing them or making them do it. We're doing it out of our own volition, out of our own free, fallen will. And He's going to hold us responsible for that. I want to know, you know, we say these things, but we don't really know how God's sovereignty works. We don't understand how God exercises His sovereignty. We only know that He does and He is good. And there's good reason why He does what He does. And so we could trust that. But trying to figure out, you know, how exactly our responsibility and his sovereignty and foreknowledge and all of that work out for him to make his sovereign decrees and his sovereign decisions, we, we don't know that. When we try to figure that out, we're going to be in error. We're going to be speaking wrongly about God. But we need to come to a place where we can say, you know, God is 100% sovereign, but I'm responsible. I'm God has decreed everything that's going to happen, and He's working that out in history. And and, and that's enough. That that, that should give us faith. That should give us comfort. And I pray that as we get through these points, it starts to give you more faith and more comfort in the sovereignty of God. But point number two, there's no need to be anxious. God's got it worked out. Fill in the word anxious. If God's sovereign and He's providentially working out His sovereign plan for the world, what do we have to be anxious about? You know, when we're anxious, we are displaying that we either aren't believing that God's sovereign or we're not trusting that He's good and has a good plan for us. Our anxiety is an affront to the nature of God, really, when you think about it. It's saying, I don't believe Well, you have a good plan for me, or I don't believe that you're able to carry out your good plan for me. Either way, you're not the God that you say you are. That's why He commands us to be anxious for nothing. That's why for every day of the year, fear not. There's a do not be afraid. There's a do not be anxious in the Bible. Because when we're doing that, we're displaying a lack of faith, and and really it's uh, an affront to the character of God. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in their heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, they have committed abominable deeds, and there is none who does good. Now I'm sure none of us in this room would say there is no God. We're not atheists, we're Christians, we're, we're people who believe that Jesus is God. I said, none of us are going to go around and say yeah, there is no God. We might be or we might not be atheists, but I think we often live as practical atheists or functional atheists. You know, the, the Hebrews that phrase, uh, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We need to understand that that's a Hebrew. It's a like figure of speech that the Jewish people used. Lives as if. What they're really saying is, the fool lives as if there is no God. And how often is that true with us? How often are we going about our day, going about our weeks, going about our lives, and we're just living as if there is no God? We might say, yeah, I believe in God, but we live as if there is no God. Doesn't our anxiety exhibit this? When we're anxious, when we're fearful, doesn't it exhibit that we're living as if there is no God? This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, More for your body is what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor do they reap or gather into barns. And yet your hub, heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field. They do not toil. They do not spin. Yet I say that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little little faith, do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? There it is. For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. The non-believers, the heathens, that's what they worry about. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, really the the care for anxiety is understanding the providence of God. It really is. Just today, I, I, I was talking to someone, and they were talking about how anxious they've been in this, and, and I was literally studying this point, and I was able to share this with them. The, the, the cure for anxiety is understanding and trusting the providence of God. Philippians 4, right, Paul tells us, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, We'll guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. You hear what Paul's saying here? Don't be anxious for anything, but pray and give thanks instead. In other words, trust comes providence. You see, when we're praying, we're looking forward, and we're committing or entrusting future events, all the future events to the Lord. We're praying about them. We're saying, yeah, this, is, this is what's happening, God, and I'm entrusting that to you. I know you're going to providentially work out my future and, and, and I'm going to trust you with it. And when we're giving thanks, we're looking back at our life and we're looking at God's providence in reverse and seeing all the ways that he's been faithful and taking care of us. And so basically we're drawing on God's providence. And as we do that, that anxiety is going to be gone and God's going to guard our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. We're going to have faith. We're not going to be anxious. We're not going to be fearful because we're trusting in God's Providence. Point number three. Uh, we are guaranteed victory. We are super conquerors. So victory and super conquerors. Romans eight thirty seven 37 says, But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We overwhelmingly conquer. Literally we're uh, super conquerors. That's what it says in the Greek." We're, we're like the superheroes, conquering. God's providence ensures this, that we're going to be conquerors, that we're going to be successful, that we're going to have victory in this world. Jesus said, I will build my church when the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when we engage in a mission, we are guaranteed some amount of success. Jesus said, I will build my church. The Lord's going to build this church. It's going to happen. It's going to be successful. It's interesting. I I used to think that this uh, reference of the gates of hell meant that Satan isn't going to be able to come and conquer people from the church. That spoke of security of the believer. That that, that Satan couldn't harm Christ's church. But I I was thinking about it, and I think it kind of goes the other way. What are gates in a city for? It's to keep the bad guys out. To protect the people inside. And and what Jesus is saying is we're going to be able to go into Satan's realm and go to Satan's people. And we're going to be able to deliver them. And we're going to be able to pull them out of the gates of hell and place them into the kingdom of God and into the kingdom of righteousness. We're going to be able to snatch people from the grips of the devil and bring them into the kingdom of God. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 29, or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. Satan is bound by Jesus at the cross and now we can go in and now we have the authority, we have the power to plunder Satan's people from this world. Satan's the God of this world. The people that are in darkness, they're under the power of the God, the prince of the power of the air. They're under Satan's authority. And we get to go and deliver them from that and into the kingdom of God and righteousness. And we're guaranteed to have some amount of success because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. We're also super conquerors because God is in charge of history. Again, Ephesians 1.11 says, as also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. We're super conquerors because we can trust that God's will or plan for redemption of the world is going to come to pass. We can trust that history is going to end the same way that this book says it's going to end. And if you haven't read to the end of this book, we win. We're we're victorious. So we're super conquerors. We're we're guaranteed victory in that regard. Lastly, we're super conquerors because God is going to providentially Work out every detail for our ultimate good. That's what Romans eight twenty eight says. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God doesn't make all things good. No, but He uses all things for our good, our ultimate good. It to conform us to the image of Christ. I often think that we forfeit discomfort because we get confused about what our ultimate good is. We think our ultimate good is comfort, not conformity. We're after leisure, pleasure. We're after comfort. We're after having fun, enjoying life. And then all of a sudden, bad things happen, and we think that that God's not in control, and and we get all distressed because our God is comfort, not being conformed into the image of Jesus. But if we... Ultimately, Christ being conformed into the image of Jesus above all else. We'll see that God is using all things, even the things that we don't like to do. So,
1: Paul says, "I forget
0: the things that lie behind, but I press forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." The goal for Paul's life was to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It was sanctification; it was to become more and more like Jesus every day. And he understood that God was using every circumstance in his life to providentially. Bring that about. Even being in prison, even being in chains, God was using that to make him more and more like Jesus. And so Paul was okay with it. He says, Hey, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I'm going to boast in my chains. I'm going to boast in my weaknesses because when I am weak, he is strong. God's strength, God's power is perfected in weakness. I don't need to go after the things that the world's going after because I trust that God is using the things that I have to conform you to the image of Jesus. See, we're more worried about how we feel now instead of how God is using our circumstances to transform us. We need to get a priority spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says, for momentary light affliction. That's cold, right? Momentary light affliction. We're going to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and and, and, and read everything that Paul went through. Momentary led affliction is producing for us an eternal way of glory, far beyond all comparison. Why we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. In us, Point number four, uh, God's providence reveals his glory. God's providence reveals his glory. The outworking of God's providence reveals his divine attributes. Take Israel, for instance. If you read the Old Testament, and, and, and even just history in general, of the nation of Israel, their history displays Almost a physical attribute of the glory of God. It displays the grace of God, the mercy of God, the power of God, the faithfulness of God, the patience of God, the love of God, the holiness of God, the provision of God, the eminence of God, the goodness of God. And I can just keep going on and on and on. But every one of God's attributes could be seen in his providential working in the nation of Israel and their history. When the saying is true about me and you individually, it really is. God's providentially working the events of our lives to reveal himself to us. And if we miss this point, we're going to miss a lot of what God wants us to get here. God wants to work in a way providentially in our life that he can reveal himself to us. That he can show aspects of his character, aspects of his nature to us. But we need to be in certain situations and and, and have certain things happen to us to experience some of these attributes. This is why there needs to be sin in the world. How is God going to show us mercy, grace, and patience if we never blow it? If we never sin, how is he going to show us his long suffering? How is he going to show us his grace? This is why there needs to be loss in our lives. How is he going to show us his redeeming qualities if we never lose anything or anyone? How's his imminence going to stand up if others don't leave us? How's it going to be special that he'll never leave us or or forsake us if nobody else ever leaves us or forsakes us? So when God takes somebody from you, when he takes your mom, your dad, your spouse, something like that, he's highlighting the fact that I'm still with you. I'm I'm not like that. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm I'm there with you. That's what he's trying to teach you. But sometimes we need to go through hard things to learn these lessons, to experience these aspects of who God is. So we can be confident that God has us going through what we're going through because he's going to reveal himself to us in what we're going through. There's, There's a revelation that he wants to take place in these events that he's planned for our life. It's not all about comfort, it's about conformity and revelation. Number five, providence gives purpose and boundaries to suffering. So in the words, purpose and boundaries. We shouldn't have a hard time seeing that God has purpose for our suffering. The last couple of points I've kind of alluded to that. He's a good father, right? He's not going to beat us. If it's not necessary. But when it is necessary, he loves us enough to do it. Right? The father that doesn't discipline his kids is a loving father. We I mean, don't need the Bible to see that. I, I have a friend and his brother has a bunch of kids and they just do it if they want. He never disciplines them. He never gives them instruction in anything. Right? And that's not loving them. Those kids have all kinds of problems because their dad isn't being a dad in their brother. You see, but God cares too much about us to let that happen. He cares too much about us to let us go on sinning without bringing correction, without bringing discipline into our lives. He's providentially worked that out. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who withholds his rod feeds his son, but he who loves him is. That's what God's doing. He's bringing about discipline and instruction in our life so that He could get us to this desired vocation for us. Because Providence not only says there's meaning and purpose to our suffering and hardship, which is what we need, by the way, but we need to know that there's a purpose. You know, I I started working out probably about six or seven weeks ago. you know, it's, it's been good, it's been bad, it's been hard, it's, it's been tiring, right? But, but when you start working out and you're out of shape, it's, it's not hard. It's hard, it hurts. Okay. I remember I'd, I'd go to this stairmaster every single day and I'd walk up to it and look at it and be like, man, this is going to suck. those are my words. And then I get on it and it's like, I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack, man. You know, and for like five minutes the world's spinning and it's like it's done and it's like, Alright, half hour goes by, I think like I got my breath, okay? I'm gonna live, this is gonna be alright. All right. I, I, I wouldn't do that every day if there wasn't a purpose behind it, if it wasn't gonna produce something in my life, if it wasn't gonna bring me health, if it wasn't gonna enable me to be able to do other right. things that I wanna do. All right. you know, I, I wouldn't put myself through that. Nobody would, nobody would go out and choose to suffer, choose discipline, choose pain, if there wasn't a purpose for it. But we know that, that God has a purpose for that. Right? He's a good father. He, he ain't going to do those things to us if there isn't a good purpose behind it. We know his purpose. He's, he's working all things together for good to make us like Jesus. That's the purpose. He's producing it, uh, an ever-exceeding way to glory these things for us. So there's purpose. But there's also boundaries for us suffering. There's, there's boundaries. Right? Remember Satan he comes to Job for. Right? He comes to God. And God's like, hey, where have you been? He's like walking to the road around the earth. You. So they come on. a bond. He has nowhere to go. He has no home. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? He's upright. He's he skeezed evil. What was Satan's response? Like, Again, yeah, but He doesn't do that for nothing. Right? Of course he blesses you. You bless him. Take away those blessings. Let's see. I can get up to curse you. And so God's like, okay. You can do that. Just don't take his life. Don't touch him. You can't touch him. You can do whatever else you want. You just can't touch him. He said, boundaries. And then Satan starts taking stuff, starts causing conflict. Job's life. When he says he can touch him, but he can't kill him, Job gets up. But God had a, a, a boundary set. Not just what Job could, couldn't, or, Satan could or couldn't do. But how long did it last? Look, all of it was set and ordained by God. Remember what Jesus says to Peter there in the upper room. <laughs> Peter's bragging about Hey, everybody else is going to leave you, but
1: not me. I'm willing to die with
0: Jesus. Remember what Jesus says. Like Simon, Simon, Satan's requested permission and sifted like wheat, and I'm giving it to him. That's <laughs> what the Peter really says. He's like. Hey, good. we When you return to me, strengthen your brothers. See, he needs boundaries. How much Satan could attack Peter, how long he could attack him. It would be that Peter would be returned to him. There would be a purpose for it. He'd be able to strengthen his brothers. I right, about this church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. Listen to what Jesus writes to the church of Smyrna. Jesus writes, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right, the first and the last, who is dead and who has come to life, says this I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the blasphemy by those who are Jews, or who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested.
1: You're going to have tribulation for 10
0: days. Be faithful unto death, and hope will give you the crown of life. You see, God's sovereignty and providence guarantee you won't suffer one second longer than God sees necessary to accomplish his purpose. And there's a crown at the end of that suffering. For the Church of Smyrna, it was 10 days. You're going to be tested for 10 days, you're going to be in prison. He says, But be faithful, and you'll receive the crown of life. To test it, it's going to prove that you're mine. It's going to prove the genuineness of your faith. it's going to pull out the imperfections. It's going to make you more like me. And ultimately it's going to be the Lord. It's what you're going to be crowned with on judging a There's a purpose, a boundary to our suffering. So God's providence, his sovereignty over every aspect of our life and history should be a tremendous comfort to us. It really should. People mock it because they you know, God's sovereign over everything. You know, how come there's this evil? Or, you know, if you really want to believe that. You know, I'm the captain of my ship, I'm in charge of my own destiny. People say things like that. Right? But we should be just It should be something that we remind ourselves of every day. God is sovereign. God's working on his plan. God's providentially caring for me. I'm more than a conqueror because of this. When I'm going through suffering, I know there's a boundary to it. I know that God has a purpose for it. And providence guarantees all these things. Amen? So, God, we do thank you for your providence. Lord, I thank you that you've revealed these things to us, that you are working all things after the counsel of your will. Lord, I thank you that we have these stories and scriptures that display this truth to us, Lord. And may it bring faith to us. May we be able to trust your providence in our own lives when we're suffering, when we're doing well, no matter what we're going through. And we do look forward to what you have. decreed. created told us about you. We trust that you will providentially bring it back, Lord. So help us to be ready for that. Help us to live in life of people, like of people that don't you want returning. That there is a, a second coming, coming, that you said there is, in your providential So be with us, Lord. I, I pray for those that aren't here. I pray that you providentially bring them back to us next week, Lord. My prayer is to be given to smaller groups, to be small groups. Of, Talk about these things that you so uh, us with your spirit. You speak through us, to one another, Lord. You use us to encourage everyone and comfort one another, Lord, and uh, serve your sinless. Uh, just be with us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.